Hello and welcome to Pass the Hot Sauce, a Roswell podcast. I'm Lorena Rose. I'm Lisa Abigail. And I'm Aliza Ora. On today's mini-sode, we're going to be discussing some international UFO incidents, and we are focusing on the countries where we have the most podcast listeners outside of the USA. So we want to say a special thank you to all of you folks listening internationally. We appreciate everyone. Whoop, whoop. So I can dive in first. Um, I will be talking about uh, UFO sightings in Sweden. So hey, Swedish listeners. And I will preface this by saying um, it was a little hard to find uh, information in English about UFOs in Sweden. I didn't find a lot. So um, Swedish listeners, if you have any uh, interesting stories or things to add on to any of this information, we would love to hear it. And you can shoot us an email at roswellhotsauce at gmail.com. So um, when I was doing some research, I found... Um, there is a UFO memorial in Angelholm, Sweden, if I'm saying that right. Um, it is one of only two memorials uh, in Europe dedicated to a UFO sighting. Um, so this memorial in Angelholm, Sweden, is um, it was erected in 1972 to memorialize a UFO sighting that took place on May 18th, 1946. Um, the UFO was witnessed by a Swedish ice hockey player named Gosta Carlson. And so this memorial was erected in honor of his sighting. So Gosta claimed to have had an encounter with the aliens that were on the UFO and that the aliens uh, shared with him natural medical remedies um, to make him healthy and to make him a good ice hockey player. That was very specific help. <laughs> yes, right? Tailored experience. Yep. He used that medical knowledge that he gained from the aliens to found two pharmaceutical companies in Sweden. So, yeah. So the aliens helped him uh, learn how to be healthy and found pharmaceutical companies. And then he erected a memorial in this, this town to honor these aliens who taught him medical knowledge, basically. So that's my story. Are the pharmaceutical items that he sells, sh uh, are, are they <clears throat> alternative medicines, shall we say? Are they things that the government might approve of him selling, or maybe not so much? Um, I'm not sure. Pharmaceutical company, you say? Hmm. <laughs> As most listeners can probably guess, there were air quotes involved in that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, gigantic air quotes. Elisa, what do you have for us? I looked at a UFO sighting in Malaysia. Um, I will do my best to pronounce the places, but, you know, I have no idea that I'm doing it correctly, or if I'm doing it correctly. Um, so um, the UFO sighting that I'm focusing on is it took place in 1995 in Tangjun Sepat, Malaysia, which is an area near the coast um, in the state of Selangor. Uh, so it's a place that now is near Kuala Lumpur International Airport, but that was built in 1998. 
So the airport was not there yet. So just to give you a background, this is a rural area. It has thick jungles and a lot of palm oil plantations. So there are a lot of farmers. There are fishermen. That's the type of people who live and work in this area. Um, so one of the sources that I found said that this happened between September and October of 1995. Another source said it was in October, so around that time. Um, some people saw what they describe as something as wide as a football field and as tall as a building hovering. That's pretty big. <laughs> what kind of building? I have no idea. Some buildings are one story tall and some buildings are... 100 stories tall. How tall is the average building in Kuala Lumpur? That's, yeah. I don't know. Mm. Okay. So it's as tall as some building. As tall as a building. So doesn't really tell us how (laughs) tall at all. Um, But it tells us it's not, you know, super short. So people said they saw flashing green, red, and yellow lights. And they reported that they saw it hovering with these bright lights, and then it landed somewhere in the jungle, and then it never came back out, right? So there were people who who t- went into the jungle to try to find it, but news of this spread pretty quickly in the small town, and local reporters came to investigate and to report on it, um, and people even claimed that they saw beings inside of it. Ooh. So they described a humanoid creature about 60 centimeters tall, how they know this, I do not know, um, which is about, it's about two feet for Thank those you. of us um, using <laughs> the imperial system. So just like a fraction of an inch under two feet. And they said they had long ears and red eyes. Mm. How they saw their eyes when it was in the sky, I am not sure. Binoculars. Yeah. I want to take a quick moment to say that Kuala Lumpur is among the top 10 cities for having the most buildings above 100 meters. So I'm just going to go ahead and assume assume that this building was a skyscraper. Yeah. All right. I mean, they said it was wide as a football field. So yeah, Yeah. it makes sense that it would be like they're talking about a tall building. So there, in one of the sources I looked at, there was uh, an account from a newspaper called The Star, um, by a man called Ricky Lai in 1995. <laughs> that sounds like a reliable name. L-A-I. Come on. <laughs> um, Lay, maybe? I don't know. I'm pronouncing it Lai. Uh, he said, I went there at night and waited for a few hours. Then suddenly I saw a powerful bright light that could be seen from many kilometers away, hovering and moving near the ground in the nearby jungle. It looked like the lights were falling to the ground, and I went to search for the landing site, but could not find any evidences of landing. This is, I'm assuming, translated to English. I took a few photographs of the lights and was awestruck that I had just seen a UFO in my lifetime. I camped there for a week, but the lights did not reappear again. Mm. So I think this is one of the people who like went to try to find where the lights looked like they landed, and uh, mm-hmm. nobody found anything. So the Malaysian government heard about it, but they did not investigate it because they didn't have the resources, and because um, there were no, there was no damage, no casualties, no injury caused by it. So they didn't find it worth it to investigate it. You said that there are photographs. Are those still around? So this guy said that he got a photograph. I didn't see a photograph of this one, but I will look 
more um, when we are done here and see if I can find something. And if I do, it will be in the show notes for everyone to see. But so it's now considered a cold case because they're really, you know, nobody ever fully investigated. And soon after the incident, the first local UFO conference was organized and apparently was a great success. Um, But I don't think they had any after that. So I'd say the first and only um, (laughs) local UFO conference. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I have no idea what actually happened there. Um, But it sounded like uh, I saw no numbers of like how many people reported seeing it, but it sounded like it was, you know, a good deal of people in the town. Mm -hmm. So who knows? My theory is like maybe they had started building the airport and this was a plane. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it was some kind of special equipment that was there for the airport or like some kind of equipment to build really tall buildings that people had never seen before. Because the lights were red, green, and yellow, which are lights that, like, we as humans use a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, colors that we use in terms of traffic and yeah, air, air traffic, traffic control perhaps. tower, perhaps. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I have another one that doesn't have a great explanation for it. So when this episode airs, I will be heading off on a trip to Canada. So I thought that I would talk about an incident that happened in our... Uh, in the land of our neighbors to the north. And this was cited as Canada's most well-documented and most thoroughly investigated UFO case. Mm. So this happened May 20th, 1967, near Falcon Lake, which is in southeastern Manitoba, and it's just about a 90-minute drive to the U.S. border in Minnesota. So pretty close to the U.S. border here. And the person involved in this sighting, I found references to him as... Stephen or Stefan, uh, last name is Michalik or Michalak. He was Polish, and so I'm not sure the correct pronunciation the correct pronunciation of his name because I think it is a translation from Polish. Um, so for purposes of this, I'm just going to call him Stephen Michalik because that's the uh, pronunciation that I found most commonly. But if I am pronouncing it incorrectly, I apologize. So when Stephen McCulloch was 51 years old, he was out in the forest uh, by Falcon Lake. So he was a mechanic by trade, but he was an amateur geologist by hobby, and he regularly visited this area to prospect for quartz and silver. So he's in the woods doing his prospecting thing, and he said suddenly he heard a great honking of geese. He looked up and saw a flock flying overhead, and they seemed to be fleeing these two objects in the sky. I've seen them alternately described as oval-shaped or cigar-shaped. Someone said cigarette-shaped, which seems like they're just long, thin poles. Yep. (laughs) So some shape of objects. There are two of them. (laughs) And they traveled together for a time, and then one of the objects stopped and hovered and then flew off as the other one touched down right near Mikuluk. So... He watched this craft from afar. He saw that the red color he had noted when it was in the sky faded to silver when it landed. And then a hatch opened on the side of the craft. Whoa. And warm sulfurous air emanated from within. So there's a very strong smell and he could feel the heat. And there was a very bright light. He put on his prospecting goggles to protect his eyes. And then he got closer 
and heard two voices from inside the craft. He said, quote, they sounded like humans. I was able to make out two distinct voices, one with a higher pitch than the other, end quote. And he assumed that they were Americans. So I said, this was 67. We're not that far from the U.S. border. The Cold War is going on. A lot of people think correctly that the U.S. is doing some sort of military experiments. I don't know if there were any in this area, but this is something that was going on. And so this is what he initially assumed. And so he said that he tried to talking to the voices within, and he tried in English, Polish, Russian, and German, but didn't get any sort of response. And then he saw these flashing lights from inside. But when he looked in, all he saw were the lights. He couldn't see any people or other creatures. And so he went to get a closer look and put his hand on the hull, and the hull was so hot that it melted his glove. Ooh. And after he touched it, the craft tilted, sprayed out something that burns Mikulik's chest through his shirt and undershirt, and then wow. the craft was up, up, and away. It was gone. Okay. Yes. And <laughs> as soon as this happened, he started getting really nauseous. He had a headache. He was seeing spots in his vision, and he vomited in the woods. Uh, he flagged down a police officer who said that Mikluk initially approached uh, approached him but refused to get close enough to allow the officer to examine him. And some say this was because Mikluk thought he was contaminated with radiation from whatever sprayed on him and he didn't want to put the officer in danger. The officer thought that this man who was sort of seeking help but was telling this incoherent story and was kind of walking like he was in pain or maybe like he was just confused... Uh, yeah, so he thought he was drunk. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was Makes telling sense. a story that seemed incoherent, it seemed implausible, so he didn't take him that seriously. Uh, Mikulik caught the bus home to Winnipeg, and he went to the hospital, where supposedly they found burn wounds in a grid-like pattern on his chest Ooh. and abdomen. And Stephen Mikulik's son, Stan Mikulik, recently, in 2017, released a book that he co-authored with a UFO researcher named Chris Rutkowski, and the son, Stan, says that he recalls smelling sulfur and motor oil on his father for days after the incident, that the smell was, like, emanating from his pores. What the hell? Yeah, really intense. Mikulik experienced diarrhea, headaches, blackouts, and extreme weight loss for weeks afterwards, and said that due to all the people who descended on their home asking all sorts of questions, because this was pretty thoroughly investigated. He really regretted telling the story, but he felt that it had been his duty to report it because he didn't want others to see the craft and try to approach it and get hurt the same way that he had. Mm. Hmm. So, like I said, this was investigated, and it was investigated by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, go Mounties, as well as uh, the Canadian Air Force, and they... Um, they wrote this up. It was actually described in the Condon Report, which was a U.S. report um, from the U.S. government that we discussed during our Roswell incident minisodes. And so there is a lot of information on this, but none of it was conclusive. And it seems that the RCMP was pretty skeptical. Um, there was that initial officer who I talked about who thought maybe he was drunk. And there's a source that says that Mikulik had been drinking, but his son denies it. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth. When Mikulik was asked to take the RCMP to the landing site later on, he had a lot of trouble identifying where it had been. 
And then they tested his glove and the shirt that he said had been burned. Um, and they had been burned, but they couldn't tell, of course, what had burned it. Um, they found samples at the landing site that were found to be highly radioactive. No radiation was found on Mikuluk himself. And later it was discovered that radium was naturally present under the soil in the entire area. Ooh. Hmm. So that explained the readings and it is like a naturally occurring element. It wouldn't have been necessarily from something uh, foreign. So a year after this happened, Mikuluk went to the Mayo Clinic because the burn wounds were still bothering him after all this Whoa. time. And the doctors understandably sent him to a psychiatrist who mm. uh, said, and I'm going to quote from the book that I mentioned written by uh, Mikuluk's son. The psychiatrist said, Quote, this is a fellow who's very pragmatic, very down-to-earth, pardon the pun, and does not make up stories, end quote. However, they also found that the burn wounds were actually some sort of allergic reaction, but they didn't know what was causing the reaction. Hmm. Whoa. Who knows? So, the son acknowledges that a lot of people have said, okay, maybe this was just a hoax, and he says, if he hoaxed it, then he was a freaking genius. (laughs) (laughs) and didn't tell his own family yeah which i think is very cute so until the day he died he said that he had seen this um but i'm gonna quote again if you asked him what it was he saw he would describe it in intimate detail but he would never say oh it was definitely extraterrestrials because there was no evidence to prove that end quote and so it seems like he thought maybe still it was an experimental military craft of some sort or like he just didn't know Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's a big question mark. There was never a cause given for it. It's not something that was ever identified as like an aerial phenomenon, you know, that we know about or like any sort of military craft that we can confirm was in the area. So the Canadian government just officially says that this case was unsolved. And if you want to read more about this, uh, Stephen Mikuluk wrote a pamphlet, My Encounter with the UFO, which is included in its entirety in the book written by his son with that researcher that I mentioned. And that book is called When They Appeared, Falcon Lake, 1967, The Inside Story of a Close Encounter. Ooh. Whoa. I hope that there's an audiobook and that it's read in that voice. <laughs> there is apparently a book written about the Swedish UFO sighting that I listed as well, although I can't find the title of the book and is it in, in any of the English articles just that the book exists and it was written by the hockey player and oh. um, the chairman of the UFO Sweden society interesting okay we'll try to find out more information and put it in the show notes if we can find mm-hmm. anything in English or via Google Translate <laughs> yeah so I did uh, look up and the only picture I can find is like pretty blurry. It seems to be from a newspaper. Um, and we can put that in the show notes. But yeah, don't get excited because you can't see much. <laughs> like a lot of UFO photos. Yeah. Yes. I wonder indeed. why that is. <laughs> well, if you live in Canada, Sweden, or Malaysia, and you have any information about these stories or other UFO encounters, let us know. We would love to hear more. Also, if you live in those countries, a different country, or even here in the U.S., and there is a UFO sighting story that you know of that you would like us to cover, uh, feel free to send us an email. 
Thanks for joining us for these stories of UFO sightings around the world. On our next minisode, we will be starting a series of discussions about UFO religions. But don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for our next episode recapping Roswell, Season 1, Episode 17, Crazy. And please, please give us a subscribe and a rating and a review on your podcatcher of choice. It really helps other listeners find us. And you can find our website at roswellhotsauce.com for bios as well as show notes about the things that we are discussing here. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Roswell Hot Sauce for lots of extra bonus content. As always, you can email us at roswellhotsauce at gmail.com with any feedback or suggestions. This particular mini-isode was inspired by a listener request, so if you have any of those, please do feel free to send them our way. Until next time, keep listening from all the corners of the globe.